Um, are there any comments or questions? Does anybody remember being here before and might be having anything that relates to what you want to say? Any? Yes, Dharma. Um, I just had a question on prayer. When I was reading that chapter, I, I got a little confused. And I just wondered if you could put, put it in context with what you said about prayer. Um, in particular, I mean, so often in my life I've just sort of done, you know, get to a really tight spot go, oh. That's prayer. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh-huh. I was reading about what the rules that he sort of puts on himself about um, he says I'm just going to read this one little sentence he says there's another rule I follow more important to me than any other I will pray if the welfare of others is concerned but generally speaking I won't pray for my own welfare right and so started to sort of go hmm you know <laughs> but he, he elsewhere modifies that yeah. he said you may pray for your own healing if that is what you sincerely want and the way I read that, when I read that, because of course we all, it, that struck all of us, um, is that you should not put on a false front. And just because you know you ought to be entirely indifferent to your own welfare, you shouldn't pretend to be when you're not, merely because you know it's the right attitude. So if it's in your heart... If it's in your heart to pray to get well because you know that you can be a better devotee well than sick. Um, Swamiji is at the stage of his own personal evolution where it feels dissonant for him to pray for anything that relates to himself unless that prayer is as he even I think he tells the story in there if you don't make me better Lord I'm not going to be able to give the Sunday service and but it's not it's of no consequence to him whether he's better or not it's just that he would like to serve others and therefore if it if it's in the best interest of things, then make him well to be able to do it. Um, personally speaking, having just been through, you know, just a flu, I was anything but indifferent to my well-being. And uh, I simply, it would have been just complete pretense for me to act as if it was all the same to me, whether I was sick or well for the rest of my life. It was a matter of great importance to me that that flu go away. Mm-hmm. And so I, it would just be insincere to pray in any other way. But, but Swami gives us the example because he wants us to understand that it's there. But at the very, very end of that, he gives you the caveat. Yes, of course, though, if it is what you sincerely want. So it's sort of like an ideal that mm-hmm. And even if you're praying for yourself, you should pray, try to pray for yourself in as generous a context, a selfless a context as possible. You know, it, it, thy will be done. Let this cup pass from me, but if I don't have a choice, then give me the strength to endure it. Um, and I, pointing out, I mean, you can just point out that, it, that you have the impression that you would be able to serve God better if you could function physically. If he has other ideas, he can enlighten you about them, but those are not your understandings at this point. I mean, so you're just having a sincere conversation. Okay, clear enough? Any other questions or comments? In the day of praying, no, that's different. The prayer that the prayer that seeks the destruction of the ego is not a prayer for self. By definition, anything that uh, when uh, Swami was saying it was selfish of him to want to be with Ananda Ma so much, she said that how can that which destroys the ego be uh, an egoic desire. So, no, to prepare, Swami himself speaks of that. He prays for the sincere love of God and devotion and the ability to meditate and all sorts of those things. Those are different kinds of prayers. Even still, if the mind doesn't turn toward self, it's nice. But if it does, don't worry about it. it it's, it's a you take out one thorn with another thorn, and then you throw them both away. So, okay. And when we're sincerely suffering, and, and we're desperately longing to be better, better to ask God than to just sort of rail against the heavens and not think in terms of that. Do you know, if every part of you is just screaming for change, and you don't pray because you're not supposed to pray for yourself, you're, you're praying anyway. You're praying with every part of you. You're just not being sincere about it. You know?
God is not fooled by a little technicality like not saying, Dear Lord. No. <laughs> so. Any other questions or thoughts? But the rest of the answer to that is actually in this chapter, Interiorizing the Mind, because Swamiji talks here about um, the, the, the overall attitude, the overall meditative attitude, which needs to be the way that we function at all times in order for us to be able to meditate deeply. And he's been going through, of course, the um, stages of Patanjali, and we're now up to, what is it, number six here, and number five, Pratahara, the uh, interiorization of the mind, where you come to a certain point in the process of meditation where you, you, you just become aware of the fact that so much of your reality is really happening internally. Um, people who have lived on the spiritual path for a long time have kind of integrated this as a fact of life, but all of us can integrate it on infinitely deeper levels. And individuals, some of whom for whom this book was written, people who've never meditated or never really thought about it at all, it is a revelation to, to be directed to an, the understanding of what the origin of, of life and consciousness is. And so he deals with this, this um, uh, whole concept, which is just very interesting, that you can't really separate your ability to be interior when you meditate with your effort to interiorize your consciousness at all times. And he gives it such an interesting um, sort of orientation. And he talks about titiksha and even-mindedness and being inwardly uh, inwardly detached a little bit. And and the reality, and he, he just says it very directly, and I'll emphasize it again here because it's just so simple and so important. Nothing happens outside the mind. Everything that appears to be taking place, we appear to be having all these experiences. So-and-so is treating me in a terrible way and it's so upsetting to me. Um, Everything is going really well and people are really praising and supporting and I feel so happy about that. You know, I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing so much and it gives me so much pleasure. I find this job so boring, I can hardly stand what I'm doing. And, and we're just so habituated because there is all this apparent activity that there just seems to be all of these things going on. And we, we fail to observe that the, whatever it is that appears to be going on outside of us, we're only ever experiencing it inside our own consciousness. And our entire experience of whether this is pleasurable or painful is just an experience inside our own heads. When somebody is talking to you often, there's nothing, there's nothing happening. A person has an attitude toward you. There's nothing you can hold in your hand. But that vibration comes into you and then it gets interpreted inside ourselves in a certain way. So Swami spends a great deal of time in this chapter talking about the interiorization of consciousness is just the simple recognition that it's always going on inside. And he talks about the um, inhalation and the exhalation and the constant up and down flow of energy in the irda and the pingala, which is just the energy goes up, the energy goes down, the energy goes up, it goes down. There's this feeling of elation, there's a feeling of depression, there's a feeling of elation and depression. It doesn't alternate with your breaths necessarily, although sometimes it seems to alternate that quickly. But it alternates as inevitably and as inescapably as that. Whatever we may be experiencing that we are persuaded is uplifting us is just because we've decided to allow ourselves to be uplifted. And insofar as we have determined that this external condition is causing us to feel elated, we are it, it, inevitably, because insofar as our up and down mood is related to external things, there's just going to be a shift. Because everything in the external world is waves on the un- unchanging ocean of consciousness. It's such a, um, a perfect image. That's why it's used over and over and over and over again, is waves on the ocean of consciousness. If, if you just sit and think, even for just the shortest period of time, 
about waves on an ocean. No one ever who observes for more than a minute believes that those waves are going to go up without going down. I mean, that's the great beauty of the ocean. We, we thrill to watch the ocean because it goes up, the waves go up and the waves go down. The tide comes in and the tide comes out. And the very uh, experience of the constant changing, ever alternating nature of it is what we find so soothing, isn't it? Because it, it, it just there's this tremendous sense of relaxation. There's this sense of immense power that's beyond us. There's this sense of rhythm that we can just ride that rhythm. And yet, because it's a little less obvious, but just a tiny bit less obvious, that all of the experiences of our lives are just also constantly alternating waves. Alternating waves. Last week I was very sick. Now I'm feeling much better. You know, it was early this morning and now it's tonight. Uh, Thirty years ago I was younger than I am now, right? I, I was, I was uh, wide awake at one point today and soon we'll be sleepy. Isn't it just, think of everything. We're hungry, we're then we're, we have a meal and we feel better. Everything just goes up and down and up and down. You can make endless lists. You're having a wonderful experience and then gradually it ends. Every time we go off on a long journey, because we travel a lot and um, journeys for us are a great deal of fun, and, but partly just to practice exactly this, the interiorization that Swami speaks of. When we're just about to leave on a trip, I always just visualize, even as I'm leaving, the fact that soon I'll be coming back in the door. And I don't do that in any way to make it less fun. It, it doesn't therefore mean that when I go out on the trip and we go to some you know, other part of the world and do all sorts of interesting and fun things that in any way, any tiny way, I enjoy it less. But I always know that it's just a temporary condition and sooner or later another condition will assert itself. Because why, why allow yourself to be drawn so far out of your fundamental reality that you forget that? And that's where Swami says, even in the, we always think, oh, I should stay even-minded in the midst of painful events. But what he emphasizes there, you have to stay even-minded in the midst of all events. Because it's not a question of steadying yourself against inevitable disappointment. That's just cynicism. It's attuning yourself at all times to the reality of this world, which is that it's waves on the ocean. You don't enjoy the ocean more by just concentrating on the tide when it comes in and then shutting your eyes when it goes out and waiting till it comes in and there it comes in again then you shut your eyes tightly you know it's just it's watching the entire cycle that that makes you feel relaxed and so it is when when something is coming to you that you know is going to be wonderful even as you're anticipating it and going to enjoy it recognize that it will slip through your fingers and for, and in that sense it, in a very real sense it's all the more precious because you know it won't be with you long. I was uh, talking to someone oh, about a friend who's dying of cancer. Somebody's father is dying. Which is, of course, not at all unusual. I don't, I'm not meaning to be at all cavalier about this. I went through the death of my mother, and it was not a simple process to go through. In my particular case, it wasn't that I dreaded her death her dying so much but it wasn't a simple process to go through so I don't mean to be cavalier about these things but nonetheless we were talking about the man is dying the woman is the wife is so upset about it you know the children are having to cope and all I could think of was how impractical not to be prepared for these things and again I don't mean to be uncompassionate because it delusion has its own power but at the same time did you think it would never happen? You know, did, did, did you really think that it would always be this way? And yet every time it isn't, we're so shocked, aren't we? But this is what Swami is giving us, the answer to this, not merely as a technique of meditation, but to use meditation as a technique of life, which is just remember that it's the energy going up and the energy going down. And then he talks at great length about the practice of Hong Sa, and he teaches it in here, which most of you or many of you have learned through our classes in other ways. Hong Sa being the, the, the practice of observing the breath and uniting it with, a, with a, the mantra, Hong Sa. 
it's so well taught in the book and since most of you know it I won't review it in that sense but because the reactive process is very much tied to the to the flow of breath that's why when you become completely centered in the spirit the breath slows down and eventually you don't breathe at all because if you have taken the the swinging the alternating opposites and united them in the center there's no need for the breath to go up and down all the time the breath is the is the sign of the energy going up and down the consciousness going up and down when you move into the deep spine and the energy simply flows up there's no need for the breath in the same way so the observation of breath which is uh, just one of the most fundamental yogic practices and one of the most basic meditation practices there's hardly a path that doesn't involve watching the breath and the practice of yoga postures is so much about the breath and there's so many different methods and techniques that are all involved about watching the breath it's not really about the breath what you're doing by tuning into the breath is you're 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 moving from the reactive process that's based on the external events to the internal place where the reaction takes place because the reaction takes place because the energy is going up and down the spine little children are so much like this um, when children little children get excited they they just invariably you see them they express their excitement like that and that's just because when things excite them the energy starts sort of shooting up the spine and they just don't know what to do it's really fun to watch them because you just see them all the time they're just always doing that and then when things they really don't like often they throw themselves on the ground because the energy just sort of plunges of course the energy circulates all the time but the emphasis whether you're elated or depressed is on the inhalation or the exhalation the rising or the falling energy but children will throw themselves on the ground because they they just ride these currents and of course children um, can change so quickly they're just totally in the upward moving energy and everything is wonderful and they're so excited and just in seconds they can become hysterical and be totally oriented in all the disappointments and the tragedies of life and it's just like it's a never-ending tragic experience and then a moment later they're up that's how we look to the saints really i mean our rhythms look longer to us but they don't really look longer in eternity they just with all of a sudden the energy's rising and we're just so certain everything is great and we're elated and we're making all these plans and we're defining ourselves by the fact that everything is going so great and then somebody gets cancer and it all doesn't work out the way we expect and we throw ourselves on the floor and we get all depressed and we're sobbing again but nothing has happened except that the waves have risen and the waves have fallen and we've exteriorized our consciousness to such an extent and Swami you know, gives us this, this after teaching the Hongsa um, meditation method he just talks about using it in all circumstances when we need to overcome an inclination to become too outward in our consciousness he emphasizes it a lot in terms of pain but when we have emotional or physical pain as he as he says to do hong saw at the center of it in other words instead of allowing the circumstance to continually pull our energy down we focus in on where the suffering is and then just observe with with quiet concentration the in and the outflow of breath because if we can center ourselves back into the ever-changing never-changing simple rhythm of the, the ocean just going up and down then all of a sudden we're not caught in whatever the undertow and the 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 thing that we have to really appreciate and it, it all has to go together is that you have to relate the same way to those things that you enjoy and what Swami is trying to say to us also is that whatever enjoyment we get from externalizing our consciousness we get much deeper enjoyment from internalizing it and that that's the sort of secret that you begin to watch as a yogi as Swamiji says far from making you less appreciative of beauty and goodness and everything that is uplifting the more sensitively 
you become in sensitive you become inward the more deeply you can experience it because everything is just a symbol and he you know he emphasizes that when you hear beautiful music listen inwardly feel the om first and then hear the music when you see a beautiful sight see the inner eye first see the light inside first and then see it as a manifestation of that and even just it, it's very interesting to watch because I see in Swamiji this there's just this great sensitivity Yogananda also was very very sensitive he was very sensitive to people's feelings um, he was very um, responsive to people's feelings he would um, tears would come to his eyes very easily tears of compassion tears of appreciation because he, he felt everything not merely as a superficial um, reality, but as a deep expression of spirit. And then, you know, even, even a flower, even a leaf becomes so extraordinary. You find yourself, if you allow yourself to become interiorized in your consciousness, that you're very deeply moved by the things of this world, um, much more so than you are when you live on the surface. Because when you live on the surface, all you ever see is that which is so egoically related to you. But when you live deeply, suddenly your the tentacles of your own consciousness are connected everywhere. And everybody's uh, uh, life experience is your own. I remember I was contemplating a scene in a movie. Um, it was actually about someone dying. I can't even remember the movie, but... It was a woman's husband was dying. And uh, he reached the point in the evolution of his uh, cancer that they had to move him downstairs and his wife realized that he would never go upstairs again. And I was just contemplating that and I, I felt myself cr- uh, crying about it. It was, it was so touching. And I said to myself, this is a movie, this is not even people. But it was... Um, it was so, it, it epitomized so much of what human life is about and the way we uh, strive in such a touching way um, to have what we want and how Divine Mother just works with us in her way and instead just forces us to grow uh, beyond these little concepts and how agonizing that is unless we've developed the habit of just seeing life from this inner point of view. That the, the need to escape pain is so fundamental to human life that it really behooves us to figure out how to do it. Because otherwise life is a terrible machine, which all of us, either in this lifetime or other lifetimes, have learned. That's why we're here. You know, if, you're, if, you, if you haven't noticed what a terrible machine life is, you're out there thinking that you can trick it and make it work for you. But we don't, but, but the, the process of spiritual evolution is to become more and more sensitively aware. And you can't become more sensitively aware and still survive unless you simultaneously learn to control your inner reactions and experience things from God's point of view. It's just very, very practical. Does that make sense? I said you can't um, become more sensitively aware unless you can experience things the way God experiences them, and that means you have to uh, live more in your in the interior of your consciousness. You have to live in closer relationship with the infinite. You have to be able to access those infinite states, and one of those infinite states is compassion. Just tremendous compassion for human beings. But there's a difference between compassion and um, getting dragged down by it. So and that's the whole trick. By our own suffering, if not other people's. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So the idea is to be more sensitive to personal Because I have a tendency to get very If I something or somebody that's hurt. It's really, I have to be very careful how I have myself involved because 
But the, but the way to handle that, I mean, one way to handle that is to, you know, block the experience. So the other way to do it is to, is to look at things directly, but experience them from inside. <clears throat> I remember Daniel Brinkley is, in, is a person who has inspired my, me a great deal. Um, there's something about his experience and his courage. It, it's, it's had a very positive influence on me. And one of the the work that he's done has been with homeless people and people in dying people and people in convalescent homes. And he's made a point of of helping real down and out characters, just quietly and on the side. He's he's very of the people, and he prides himself on just being a regular sort of guy. And so he likes to really help the average folk. Um, I don't have the same calling, and yet. He's terrifically sensitive and not at all afraid. He's not afraid of homeless bums on the street. And so I, I practiced for a while because I used to be especially extremely um, oversensitive to homeless bums on the street as, an, as a very real example. And I started pretending when I would see these pathetic people pushing shopping carts down the street that I would try to treat them the way Daniel Brinkley would treat them. I would try to pretend that I was him and not me. And I know that he would just look right at somebody and just, he's just not afraid of people's karma. You know, so you're kind of a nutcase having a pretty weird incarnation. Well, that's something, isn't it? You know, just like, <laughs> it's, it's the guy's destiny, so big deal. So you're having a really weird incarnation. And I, I could feel my inclination, pretty much exactly as you have all, you expressed it, that I would see them and then I would get drawn out of myself. And I have a, a, an exceedingly empathetic nature and it's not hard for me to just be in their consciousness, and, or at least my projection of it. But instead of being in their consciousness, I've tried to be in the center of my own and project that center out into them. Does that make sense? So that I'm no less, in fact, I'm more open, but I'm not, uh, I'm not off-center in being open to them. But I'm just, you just stand in the center of the fact that here we are, we're just waves on the ocean and we're all having this very interesting life experience, aren't we? And I'm playing out my particular role and look at the part you got. You know, but, but like, almost like we're actors on a stage and there has to be some kind of a bond. Now that doesn't mean that you necessarily, you know, really look in the eye of people who are nuts and, and make connections you don't want to follow through on. Because I don't necessarily want to get engaged. But I can get engaged vibrationally by, by staying in the part of me that doesn't change. I mean, that's exactly what Swami is talking about. Can you understand what I'm saying? Instead of getting in the part that goes up and down and breathes hard and worries about them and wonders and thinks how freaky they are and how painful it must be, I just get in the part that's, that's just at the bottom of the ocean, just looking up at the wave. But then you can look at the wave. What is there to fear about the wave? If you're, if you're rooted in the ocean, you don't have to be afraid of the wave. And you can at least give your heart, you can give your blessing. And, uh, and then I, I ask myself over and over, what am I afraid of? Because then that, that fear is just what makes the reaction. What do I have to fear? You know, I'm just driving by this person pushing a shopping cart. Why, why would that cause a fear reaction in me? And that would just be because it sucks me out of myself. But now that's very, very impersonal. But when all of a sudden some big thing is happening in your own life that looks like it's going to take it up and down, up, upside down. You say, why would this cause a fear reaction in me? If I can just stay in the center of myself, there's no reaction. This is interiorizing your consciousness. And then Swami emphasizes, you can influence the world so much more from that position. Think about it. You know, if you're, if you're in contact with the ocean and observing the wave from the point of view of the ocean, you can sort of see it coming and you, ha you know what to do more. If you're way out on the tip, uh, wondering where it's going to go next, 
it's always exceedingly insecure. And so you, you cannot merely um, change circumstances by changing your attitude, but you can actually change circumstances because you can know what to do and do it with a lot more energy. And of course, and this is what Swami's writing in this chapter, this is hand in hand. You meditate, you observe the breath, and do the other techniques. You listen to the sound and, and do Kriya or whatever you have to do. And you experience this um, unchanging independent center. And then that helps you when you're in outer circumstances and you're watching yourself being pulled away and you want to go back. You, re- you resurrect your meditation or recall it to mind. At the same time, if on an everyday basis you try to react to your circumstances by pulling back into the center of your spine, then the habit is there when you sit to meditate. And, and Swamiji also says something, one last point before I go from this chapter, was he says there, there has to come a certain point where that's what you really want to do. You have to really want to interiorize your consciousness. Yes, Barbara. Um, can you say what the difference would be between pulling your consciousness into your spine from a situation that you're getting out of your spine and pulling your energy away from the situation? Closing to the situation. Well, actually, it, if, if you think about it, it it's, it's not hard to tell for yourself because if you're pulling away from a situation you're uh, diminishing your energy in relation to it and often it's a it just almost the way you do it is a stiffening you know when you when you pull your energy away from something it's it's like I don't want to have to deal with it you just stiffen against it and you feel all this inner resistance there's usually fear or sadness associated with it and a, and a devout prayer that this will go away. When you center into something, you, you, just, you actually look at it more deeply. And the more deeply you look at it, the, the calmer you feel. There's, a, there's a, 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 a dissipation of your anxiety when you relate to something from your center. Because you're, you're looking right at it, you're not trying to run away from it, but you're trying to just penetrate into the center of yourself in order to be able to deal with it. Not, not to close off to it so that you won't have to deal with it. Does that make sense? You have to remove yourself from the situation just because that's the choice you have. Can you still... I would think you can still go into the center yeah. of it in a different atmosphere if you have to. Well, sometimes you have to... Sometimes it's... Sometimes the magnetic pull to make you off-center is so great that you have to pull yourself you have to get away from it in order to get centered you know if you, it's better master said to run away than to be defeated by something if you if you see that the challenge of this is so much greater than my ability to handle it I'm just going to walk away from it first and then I'll get centered and then I'll if I can't deal with it directly I'll at least deal with it inwardly and that's just fine uh, and it's usually, it's about fear and it's about willingness to relate. Sometimes, you know, sometimes things are not really your problem and part of the lack of over being off-center is to think you have to deal with everything. Sometimes things are really just happening and it's other people's karma. You don't have to worry about it. A great deal of the time, what happens to us is that we think we have to respond or react. You know, so-and-so is having a terrible time with so-and-so, and it makes me nervous. Why should it make you nervous? It has nothing to do with you. They're just working out a problem, and there's tension, or there's energy, or there's lessons to be learned. And, and, and part of the outwardness is that I have to do something, even by having an opinion, instead of just going back enough into your center to realize it's just not my destiny. I can just kind of be a supportive friend to the whole situation and just... Let everybody learn their lessons. I don't have to worry about it. So it's not always it's not always negative to not participate. Does that make sense? Just like the homeless people, why do I have to worry about their karma? 
among other things, you have to appreciate that other people's karma does not feel as weird to them as it looks to you. It looks weird to you because it's not yours. And, and we always project, we always project, like we think of ourselves, you know, I'm me and I'm living this life and then bingo, I'm on the street with one of those cartons, carts like that. And there's just like nothing in between. But that's not how it happens. If, if you feel like yourself, you're not going to be on the street with one of those shopping carts. Or if you are, you're going to do a lot of, you have a lot of steps in between and each one of those choices is going to lead you uh, and for, for the people who find themselves there, it was just the next step of their destiny. It, it, it followed logically from all the little steps they took before. And it got them into that point. So it's familiar. Yes, Annette? That's really true. My boyfriend uh, worked at First Chance, where there's an alcohol council where people get free for drinks instead of putting them in jail and bring them there. So he dealt with a lot of homeless people. And sometimes he'd be leaving the next day and say, Would you like to have some? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's just like, huh? That's an interesting life you've chosen. But it, but that's that's not a small lesson you just said because that goes everywhere. As hard as it seems, you see the crippled person, the sick person, the young mother dying while her children are still small, and you think, oh, it has how terrible. Not necessarily. It's just the appropriate karmic thing for them, which you can feel if you're at the center of the ocean. And then you have to say to yourself, oh, great tragedy struck my life. Mm, necessarily. This is just the appropriate next step for me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't right. I love Mother Teresa's way of putting it. We had, we had that on the wall for a long time. I don't know if it's still there. God never gives you more than you can handle. Sometimes I wish he just didn't trust me so much. <laughs> and so you, you have to say, are you sure you haven't made a mistake here and given this wonderful karmic opportunity to the wrong person? But, well, here it is. My favorite way of that of all was uh, one of my friends. She had a, a, a job that she just really couldn't handle. And she was just making a mess of it, and she knew it. She wasn't temperamentally suited, and she wasn't, just wasn't capable or able to deal with it. And uh, she's a disciple of a different path. And she was feeling just so every day worse about herself and her circumstances and just inadequate. And finally she went to meditate, and she basically said, Guruji, you want this job done well, you get somebody else. You're content to have it run in this manner? Fine, I'll just keep on doing my best. And after that, she sort of said, it's not my problem. She said, I'm just, I don't have these skills. But, you know, this has been put in my hands. And soon after, she was relieved of the responsibility, which was a great relief to her. But in between, she just said, I'm doing my best, and I'm just not good at this. And if this is what he wants, this is what he gets. And so sometimes it's very helpful. You just sort of put it on the Lord. You want me to just lose ground? You want me to just mess up completely? You want me to just screw up these children's lives by leaving me in relationship to them? Fine. This is just the best we're going to do. You want it done better? You just help me out or get somebody else. You can be very frank. <laughs> okay, anything else? Comments or questions? All right. Let me just look, see what the next chapter is and then we'll go on with this. Oh, this is the chapter where Swamiji talks about um, first he talks about the, the, the battle images that are so common in spiritual life. And he says something that's so helpful that, of course, you all read it, but it's, it was just so wonderful to read. He said, because we often have these battle images, he, he says we often think we're doing battle with God or that we're having to fight our way, as he puts it, into the inner kingdom. 
when in fact he said what we're having to do is fight our way out of the fortress of ignorance that we've created and that what we're doing battle with is our own self-appointed guards who are keeping us trapped. God is on our side, is how, is how we put it. It's a, it's a very interesting, because we do have this sense of the need to do battle, and many of us really love the battle image, but we have to realize that it's not us and us versus God. It, it, we've, we've imprisoned ourselves and we have our own uh, legions point, uh, appointed to keep us imprisoned. And we have, to, we have to break out of that self-created jail. And the war, and that's, he uses the Mahabharata image in here, and the war in the Mahabharata is the war with, with the cousins, where Arjuna has to do battle with his own family, and he has to murder his own family in order to please Krishna. Krishna is his charioteer. God is with him, and God is just right there with him, helping him through the whole thing. And the war he has to fight and get up his courage to fight is really with his own people and just get, get the courage to reject his own people. But what, that, what the image is about is that it's not God that we have to please or that we have to fight against. That The image of Krishna driving Arjuna's chariot into battle, advising Arjuna, handing him the right weapons, telling him when to strike, when to pull back. In fact, Krishna is running the chariot you know, he's, he's the moving force. He's taking him into the fray. He's pulling him back when he knows it's too much. And all through it, you, you sort of see him, you know, ba- uh, bandaging the wounds and uh, staunching the flow of blood if necessary. It's a very uh, comforting image. And yet here we are in the epitome of the battle scene, which is the Mahabharata. But what is Krishna teaching Arjuna to do? He's, he's, he's getting him to, to destroy those forces which are in fact keeping Arjuna from enjoying his kingdom. But it's not Krishna that's keeping him from enjoying it. It's these evil cousins who have taken his inheritance away from him. His inheritance of bliss and wealth and freedom and, and the possessions that are rightfully his. And, and God takes him into battle and he has to pick up his sword against them. But God is the comforter in all of that. Isn't it? It's a very important shifting of that image. Whenever we begin to sense that in some way, you know, God is asking something hard of us, however we may think of it, or guru, or this is too much, it's not true at all. That, the, 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 the thing that makes us feel strong is the presence of God. It's that evil um, minions of our own making have taken over and confused, just very much like I, w- I, I had this fever, which I've had a few fevers in my life, I can count them. I can remember when I've had fevers, but I've had so few that I can remember them. And having a fever is so weird, especially a high fever, because you've just been invaded. You know, and you're just, you're just there. Your, your place is now occupied by something else. And that which you're so accustomed to calling yourself, it just has a whole different character to it. And, and, but it's a perfect image for what happens to us when we get deluded. Our place, our, our pure space of inner happiness and just bliss in the presence of God has been invaded by these nasty forces of doubt and delusion and uh, hatred and fear and uh, I've been mistreated and you're a nasty person and if you would just go away I would be happier. You know, these are all the enemy forces that have come. It's not God who's troubling you. God is on the side saying, who are these people? Why don't you just really tell them to go home so we can be happy in here again, you know, like we're meant to be. And, but it's, very, it's a very important stage on the spiritual path to be willing to do that battle. And Swami writes about how the Shudra, Vaishya, Kshatriya, Brahman, applies to our spiritual life. The Shudra just wants somebody else to do all the work. It's just, I'm just going to sit here and somehow it's going to happen. Somehow it's going to happen. And of course it doesn't. The Vaishya is always making deals and weighing and measuring. You know, Listen, I've meditated a lot. I should be happier than this now. I'm not sure the system works. You know, I've been tithing on a regular basis. How come I didn't get a raise? I don't think I'm going to tithe anymore. 
It's just not and nothing to do with commitment to principle. Just it's a way. It's always a weighing and measuring, and and getting over being a Vaishya devotee is a very important stage of spiritual growth. Uh, oftentimes, if you if you think about your own relationship to the spiritual path, you the Vaishya stage where I'm owed and I'm betrayed. You know, it was supposed to be better than this. There there has to come a point, and God tests you. You put out all the energy in the world and nothing works. You do everything right and nothing goes your way. And a lot of times it's just to help you get over that Vaishya stage. Because as long as you're doing it for what you get, you're not really behaving properly. Think about a mother or a friend. You can have someone who appears to be your friend and then it comes down to it and you realize they've been keeping score all these years and you're behind. And you just think, this hasn't really been a friendship. I thought we were friends. I didn't realize this was some kind of a deal. And now I'm not living up to it. If you just think of it in a very uh, obvious way, you realize that that, that that's in, in, uh, inherently repelling. You know, love, love means a selflessness. And so in our relationship with God, God is not inspired if we just took it up because of what we were going to get out of it. And we don't get, we, we cry foul and say it isn't. It isn't really what it was uh, meant to be. A kshatriya acts in principle. You simply do what's right. You know, you're my friend and I'll just help you and that's just the way it is. That's what I'm going to do. And sometimes your friends are very responsive to you and sometimes they're not. But if you've, if you've agreed to be a loyal friend, you're just a loyal friend and eventually it all works itself out. And Swami said when he was going to loan him, this man gave him a hard luck story and Swami figured he was probably lying, which it turned out he was, of course. But Swami said, just in case he's telling me the truth, I'll feel badly if I didn't help him. So he gave him some money and then the man very extravagantly said, well, you know, I'm going to pay you back because I wouldn't want you to lose your faith in human nature. And Swami smiled, oh, he said, whatever faith I had in human nature, I lost a long time ago. He said, I'm not giving this to you because, it, because you're going to give it back to me. I'm giving it to you because it's right. And if it's right, then it will come back to me. And of course, the man never repaid him, but in countless ways, by acting according to right principle, then you activate those right principles. And as Swamiji also writes here, it's very sweet about the stage beyond the Kshatriya stage, the Brahmin stage, where there isn't a struggle anymore. Why would there be a struggle? If everything is as God wants it to be, why would there be a struggle? And that's a very deep and wonderful question to ask because so many of us have worked so hard to get to the Kshatriya stage where we're just so busy being such willing little warriors that every so often it's worth asking the question, why am I still fighting like this? And in many ways that's what you see in Swamiji. Um, at this stage of his life is that he spent so many years battling the forces of inertia to manifest, to make Ananda, to earn you know, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars against all obstacles year after year, decade after decade. And then finally just a complete surrender of all of it. And uh, uh, the, the battle still goes on inwardly to write, to be creative, to but just sort of a letting go of everything else. Just what is the point anymore? Because he's proven beyond doubt his willingness to do it. And then there just comes a point where it, it's no longer appropriate. Every stage, uh, is, it depends on whether you're in front of it or behind it. You know, whether you just, after a time, that's why he, you don't even struggle to be well. You just are well or sick, whatever God wants. It's not necessary. Master never, not that Master didn't go to doctors, that's not true, but often when Master had serious physical issues, he, he would never consider going to doctors because it wasn't about medicine. It wasn't about his own physical karma. It was just God doing what he wanted to have done. And just there was nothing to be done about it. There was no point in treating it or even thinking about it. Just simply, whatever happens, who cares what happens to the body? As, as Master himself said, if once you've eaten the wisdom dinner off the plate of life, 
what difference, what, what matters, what happens to the plate. <laughs> Whether you keep it or it breaks apart and you throw it away, meaning the body, who cares? I've, I've accomplished what I came to accomplish through the body. But for, for those like us who are still fighting that battle, we have to take very good care of this, this temple. We have to work much harder at it because we need it more. We're not finished. You know, I've really come to appreciate lately. Um, it takes so long to get yourself organized. I've, I've never really cared about long life, but recently I've begun to care about it a lot more because it takes so many years to just get your systems running so you can be a functioning good devotee. And then I think why you would want to, you would want to do this as long as you could. I know when Happy Winningham, who had AIDS, and she lived about eight or nine or ten years with it, and she was, as she said toward the end, since you know it's like having a, ca- a bad case of the flu all the time, and she said to Swami, how much longer do I have to keep doing this? In other words, doing, putting all this effort to keep the body alive. He said, as long as you can still do Kriya, it's worth keeping. He said, at the point at which you just really can't use it to meditate anymore, he said, then it's better just to let it go. It's too much of an interference at that point. Interesting way to put it. Because it is a good question. Because you see people really fighting to keep in their bodies. Should they keep doing that? As long as you're making spiritual progress through it is another way to say it, whether it's Kriya or other, me- other means. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? The last chapter, I just want to talk a little bit about the last chapter of the book, and I won't keep us too late tonight. Um, this is the chapter that Swami calls Intuitive Guidance, and it's about living more superconsciously. And he, he again puts it at the end of the book. The whole book is called, of, of course, Awaken to Superconsciousness. Many years ago, it's about 1979 and 80, 81, Swamiji created something that he called at the time superconscious living, SCL, we, in our inimitable fashion, the way you, you take some beautiful idea and you shorten it into some... It, because Master called Self-Realization Fellowship SRF, I'm in no position to criticize, but still. But Swamiji, when he sort of really suddenly put a lot of emphasis on the concept of living superconsciously. He was, he was expressing to us that it's really the entire essence of the spiritual path to live superconsciously. And in this chapter, he talks about it from many different angles. And there's so many things in this book that are so... Um, this alone would change the way you relate. But this alone would change the way you relate. He calls it intuitive guidance, but what he's really saying is just another way of orienting ourselves so as to break the, the grip that the, ego's, the egoic way of looking at life has. And he makes a, a big distinction here between reason and between logic and the process of superconsciousness. And he talks about how, especially in our culture, we're so extremely focused on figuring everything out and we always have to take the parts and weigh them we don't we don't tend to see life as just something that's happening that we're flowing through we always want to stop it and figure out where it's going and where it's coming from Swami remarked that the Indian culture is set up to train people to be intuitive it's, it's just it's it trains you to have a sort of sense of the greater flow of things said the difficulty is if you don't make it to intuition, you don't have a a fallback position of reason. (laughs) And since a lot of people don't make it to intuition, you just end up with a lot of chaos, is what you really have. (laughs) I remember when uh, this woman named uh, Mohini Singh, Mrs. Singh, she was was the cultural attache to the Indian consulate in San Francisco, and she was a friend of Ananda's. she is a friend of Ananda's, but she's, she's retired. This was many years ago. She lived in this big house in St. Francis Wood, and her, her term in America was up, and they were shipping, they were moving back to India and shipping everything back to India. Some, some of us from Ananda were there helping. And Mrs. Singh was one of those who made it all the way to intuition, but did not have a lot of reasonable fallback position. And the American way of doing things is so orderly. You think, you know, People like us, we're going to move, you have it all lined up, you're going to pack this, you're going to do that, you're going to put this here, you're going to ship that. And 
Her way was just kind of to randomly move through the atmosphere and just do a little here and a little there. I mean, all very elegantly and lovely in this beautiful sari. And I mean, they made it back to India. They, They did it. And Seva and I were helping them and she wanted us to... There was a, many books that were commercially oriented and she wanted us to count them and package them in a certain way. And She, she presented it, the, the project to us as if it was exceedingly difficult to organize these books. Seva and I, being superior Westerners, listened with a very sense of, this is a no-brainer, we can do this. And we were being very polite and listening to her explain it over and over again, but we, we really knew we had it together. We went into that garage where the books were, and we, we could not count to six without getting confused. <laughs> and finally it became so ludicrous because we were really incapable of doing it. We just, we just couldn't go into that atmosphere and apply this very linear Western way of doing things it just did not work. Finally, I can still see Seba's face. Both of us, we were, we were just limp with laughter. We were collapsed on the floor <laughs> because we just could not function. And we finally just gave up trying to do it our way. And we just like tried to remember the things that she said and kind of tried to do it her way. And we found that then we could. You know, we could gather them up more or less and get them more or less organized and the numbers were mostly related to the books that were there and it was it was what was required in the circumstances it just wasn't an atmosphere in which reason held sway and there's a lot of times in our lives when it's just not an atmosphere in which reason holds sway and we think it does we think everything is about reason but many many things in life are not many things in life are just about Isn't it fascinating what's happening? Just how everything is just flowing along. And Swamiji really emphasizes that. But he he says it's not a question of being... I mean, that whole story was not exactly about super-consciousness. That was just about egoic comeuppance is what it really was. But, But there's also just this realization that no matter what appears to be happening on this planet, there really is a divine unity going on behind it. That's what superconsciousness is. There's always a divine unity. Swami has that wonderful phrase. Things are not merely relative to one another. They're related, he said. Everything is related. And so any one little incident that happens in your life that you think is such an anomaly and isn't part of everything else, it's not true. Everything is always related. And God is always acting in complete concert. Everything is always integrated. A very interesting image that Swami raised once. You know, everything in life uh, connects. At what point can you, can you take one incident and draw a circle around it and say that it's unrelated to everything else? There was a, uh, I read an essay by a Buddhist woman who had resisted the concept of karma. And uh, she was holding her grandchild and her grandchild sneezed in her face. And a few days later, she came down with the same cold the baby had. And the woman thought, how can you say it's karma that I would get this cold? Or how could it be God's will? Or She sort of asked that question. But then she went, she just started going through this process. And she started just going, linking the, the fact that she was in bed with the cold just back through all the many stages. How did she come to be holding her grandchild? Well, because her daughter had to go and do such and so. But then she stopped for a moment and said, well, how did I come to have a daughter? You know, and how did that daughter come to have a, a, a child? And then she had to go back to the time when there she was and she'd met her husband. Well, how did she happen to meet her husband? And then she had to go back to the fact, well, she, if she'd never been born, she never would have met her husband. And then she had to go back to her parents and her grandparents. And pretty soon, literally, you could just go back in time infinitely and it would all lead to the fact that she was sick in bed with a cold. And there would be no point at which you could sort of draw the line and say that she would have been sick in bed in a cold if all, the, if all these things hadn't happened. Things that, that apparently bore no relationship to it and yet there's always this interplay. And the, the profound and simple value of it on the deepest level is that whatever comes, 
instead of just cutting it apart and looking at it as a little thing like this, like we always do, and try to make sense out of it, you know, why did he treat me like this? Why do I feel like this? Why is this happening to me? You just figure, well, there's just some great interplay of karmic forces, divine forces. Jyotish gave a sermon once, which was so interesting, at Easter time. Jesus um, uh, says before he's crucified, Oh, Lord, save me from this hour. But then he says, but for this hour was I born. And, and it's such a dramatic line, especially when you think, well, he had to be crucified and resurrected and the story required this amazing drama. But then Jyotish pointed out that we can be, the same thing can be said for any of us at any point. You know, for this actual literal moment, even this very moment in which we're sitting here, all the forces of all of our incarnations have all conspired to put us right here, right now. In this, in this very moment, this is the total, sum total of all our karmic efforts have brought us right to here. For this hour were we born in order to fulfill the potential divine destiny of this moment. Now, sometimes you think, really? <laughs> <laughs> Because you kind of wish you were born for a different hour than this one. Remember um, the movie Groundhog Day, which was so good. I mean, I saw it so many times. I could, I had it memorized. We had so much fun with that movie because philosophically, it was one of the the soundest movies. There's oftentimes there's movies that have metaphysical implications, but they play a little fast and loose with the actual laws. But Groundhog Day was pretty darn right on with the way the karmic law really worked and I remember at the very beginning one of the early parts of the movie when he was having to repeat this day over and over again and he was still in his state of rebellion and he started talking about a day that he'd had somewhere in Cancun or something on some tropical island you know where he drank margaritas and ended up making love to some beautiful woman that he picked up on the beach he said if I had to repeat a day why couldn't I repeat that day <laughs> so that's a day I would have liked really liked to have repeated over and over again <laughs> why did I have to get this day of all days and so we often think of ourselves like this, the texture of each moment sometimes is so mundane but you really have to say it's a divine opportunity that you worked very hard to have. I remember a woman who has now died and who was working with cancer for such a long time. And, uh, she said to me, just not many weeks even before she died, maybe it was a couple of months, she said, uh, you know, this really has been tragic on one level, she said, but I've had to say, and I say it to you, this has really been the best thing that ever happened to me. She said, I didn't appreciate. She said, now, just the ability to do the laundry and fix supper. She said, I consider it just such an honor to be able to do the smallest things for the people I love because I've lost the capacity to give anything to anyone. And when I can just give a little bit, I see that it's such a, um, a great and noble thing to be able to serve others. And she meant it very deeply and very sincerely. And I thought of her when I arose from my extremely minor experience, but nonetheless it, was, it loomed large in my mental sky, as we say, to just be able to get up and fix myself a, a little something to eat or, or fix uh, David some orange juice after having to just rely on him completely for so many days. Just, and I thought of her, and I thought about just when everything that we really treasure is taken away from us, all of a sudden we stop and think, this is really a wonderful thing that's given to me. For this hour was I born. You have to also appreciate that there is not a time in which you have, you really actually are more divine than you are right now. It's so, it's, we, we can't help but think in logical terms that we lack and will acquire. But, but, but there's, no, there's no particle of creation that isn't entirely divine. There's no aspect of our soul that isn't already present. The only thing that's missing is our superconscious awareness of it.
And there's no lack of perfection to this moment in time. The only thing that's lacking is our superconscious awareness of it. Now, what we simply need to do is we need to practice that thought a lot more. And you need to practice it when there's nothing much at stake. When I was at the worst of the way I felt, which was about a 24-hour period, it was, it was very hard for me even to stay cheerful. It was just very, I was very uncomfortable and very unhappy. And I did my best to endure, but I was not winning the battle. And it, it reminded me, as it always reminds you at moments like that, I need to have, be more adept at this. I need to have more skill at transcending small things so that when big things come, I'm more used to doing it. We have to instinctively respond to situations by saying, huh, what a beautiful superconscious expression of the wonderful perfection and interrelated harmony of things that I should be caught in traffic when I really need to be somewhere else instead of doing all the other things that we normally do. And just sort of try to feel right in that moment, how can this be a superconscious moment? And not just a question of interiorizing our consciousness and doing Hong Saw in the traffic jam or all of those things, but just really standing back in the wave and thinking superconsciously. Just like Swami tells the story of being stuck in Calcutta and not having anything happen the way he expected, and just stopping and saying, well, Divine Mother, what do you have in store? And he, he points out, you have to ask that question with real energy. It can't be just a cop-out or an excuse for action, inaction or laziness, but you have to say very dynamically, okay, you put me here, what do you want from me now? Think superconsciously. It's so much fun. See, one of the greatest, funnest things about the spiritual path when you really get into it is you can always be doing it. There's, just, there's no hobby in the world that you can always do. But this one you can always do, no matter where you are. Even, you know, on your deathbed you can do it. In the middle of your job you can do it. When you're all by yourself you can do it. When you're in the middle of a crowd you can do it. When you're in boring meetings you can do it. It's so much fun to sit in really boring meetings. I'm not in that many anymore because I have control over my own life. But I used to have to be in meetings a lot more. Not all of them were boring. Ananda meetings can be fun, but even them can be boring. It's just so much fun to just sit there and then just sort of see the superconscious web around you. And many of you have jobs where you work with people who aren't devotees. Just see the superconscious web. Look at all these souls that Divine Mother has brought together. I wonder why we're here. You know? And at the very least, we're here so that I can beam out a little positive energy toward them. Just see that interconnected web of light. And, and then you escape. You escape. It's the ultimate escape. You get out of the ego. And that is, after all, the point. Yeah. Okay, I think that's the end of the story. God bless you.